Hello and welcome to another episode of the More From Law podcast. I'm your host, Harry Clark. This episode features Dana Denise Smith, CEO and founder of Obelisk Support, as well as the founder of the First 100 Years Project, which aims to chart and celebrate the journey of women in the legal profession. In this episode, Dana and I discuss flexible working within the law, reframing the conversation about equality in the legal professions and more. Let's get into it. So hi, Dana. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And um, I know you've done your fair share of podcasts and talks in your time, including one um, at TEDx, which is really cool. So I know that this might not be the most prestigious and amazing platform that I'm sure you've had the the opportunity to grace. But thank you anyway for for taking your time out to speak on something which um, I think if we'd have been talking about, you know, six months ago, would have had a completely different conversation about, which is this idea of, of flexible working and, and remote working and, and, and why it's going to affect the law. But before we get too much into that, a nice kind of icebreaker question I like to ask when people come on the show is, is why did you originally want to join or work within the profession and what's your sort of background to date? It's a very good question, actually, because um, I never considered a career in law. I grew <laughs> up under communism and communism and law were a combination that was very unappealing in the sense that a lot of lawyers were <laughs> collaborating with the regime. Mm-hmm. So in my kind of upbringing, I always saw law as a, you know, underpinning the wrong regimes, if you like, mm-hmm. um, as a child. So I was very uninterested in, in, in law. And I remember um, I went into journalism because I felt I could interrogate and, you know, challenge status quo and really fight for freedom, I guess. And uh, one of the um, the first memories I have of law was when I attended a local council meeting mm. um, in rural Transylvania, and um, this kind of lawyer turned up, and um, he was making the case for the uh, well, the, the kind of council, mm. and uh, he basically just launched himself into this kind of you know article number whatever and you know it's codified um uh, you know the whole um legal system it's not like in the uk and um Mm. basically he was his language was impenetrable and that was part of what he was trying to achieve was to impress with his you know um superior linguistic skills but make sure he wasn't understood so he paralyzed Mm. everybody in terms of what they would do next because they had no idea what he was saying (laughs) but they all voted for whatever motion he put forward and i just thought this is Mm absolutely outrageous you know um mm. this is not how law should work um you should use it for the good and for better and so i was intent on not going into legal uh, legal career i was quite um against it actually and yeah. i went into journalism so i went out of high school straight into journalism feel- feeling very strongly that that is by telling stories and by being you know, a supporter of maybe if you like the kind of unrepresented underdog, you know, mm-hmm. um, you could really change one life at a time mm. for the better. And uh, I only started considering a career in law after I came over here and went to the LSE and got my, you know, degrees and everything. And um, I started dating a, a, a barrister. Mm. And uh, I started kind of, you know, getting to know more people in the legal profession. I actually thought, well, this is a very different legal, um, you know, regime, a, a very different system that really seems to be doing what it's set up to do, which is to mm. create, you know, um, rule of law and to be, you know, justice in the way I understood it to 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 mean, um, uh, you know, creating um, good access for people to, you know, defend themselves and all of that. So. 
um, that's when I started to consider law, um, having, you know, this kind of firsthand experience of, you know, a lot of aspiring lawyers, basically, because we were mm. quite young and uh, full of ideas and trying to, you know, defend the rule of law and all of that. But I felt by joining the legal profession here, I had, I stood the chance, um, you know, at actually doing it. Mm. Um, uh, very, very, very different from my uh, childhood. So that's kind of when I started thinking about it. And then I um, applied to, well, a few firms, like we all do, mm -hmm. and uh, got accepted by links, uh, mm -hmm. by link leaders, and I trained with them. Fantastic. And you mentioned in your answer, you know, trying to champion the underdog and, and kind of increase the access to law. And I guess that's a really big founding principle as to why you decided to find, uh, found the First 100 Years Women in Law Initiative. Well, I, I guess it, it all, you know, it's all linked together because I, you know, I was a journalism, a journalist for quite a few years before I, I turned to law and I knew already the power of storytelling and the power of visibility. Um, mm. You know, when, when you, you're stuck, but if you put your head out and you, you know, you ask for help, for example, you're more likely to be helped. Um, trying to solve everything by yourself sometimes doesn't really deliver. Mm. And, um, I kind of used that skill from knowing how to tell a story and at the same time address something that I thought was, you know, a deep injustice, but in a positive mm. way, because you can do it in very, very many ways. You know, I was mm -hmm. keen that it remains a positive engagement with a very, very, very deep problem that we still have in our society. Mm. Um, but uh, approaching it with the same old language, you know, say that, you know, old language of feminism that seems to be very antagonistic, you know, it's kind of not mainstream. Um, I felt mm -hmm. maybe it wouldn't deliver because obviously it's been, you know, uh, you know, moderately successful. Mm. And I felt we can create a new way of engaging with this, um, with the problems that we're facing, especially around equality for women mm. by changing the way we approach it so mm. that we create um, more unity rather than um, uh, you know, be divisive. So, mm. uh, but journalism definitely helped me in coming to it from a kind of storytelling point of view, um, mm. rather than traditional kind of pure rule of rule of law or justice, you know, mm. um, I wanted it to be, and I guess maybe this goes back to my previous anecdote around this impenetrable lawyer that, you know, was speaking in a way that he wanted nobody to, to understand, you know, um, mm -hmm. I was always very keen that people should know very easily where they stand. Mm. You shouldn't be, you know, um, obviously simplifying. Um, you can't, sometimes it's very difficult to simplify, but you have to always make sure that you're easily understood. Mm. Um, and I guess, again, with journalism, you can do that because you, it's all about telling the story well to have mass, you know, media access, right? So you have to be able to tell the story in a very accessible way. Mm. And that was kind of contrary to how the language of law was used. It seemed to mm. be very much about not making it acceptable and easy to understand. <laughs> so I felt if I come with my journalism hat, I can maybe mm. make a dent into that. Mm. Um, and make it um, easier to understand what the issues are, but also enjoyable rather than, you know, just being negative. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, th you th I think you raised a really important point with the idea of 
legalese and trying to understand the profession and, and the content of law itself can be incredibly difficult at times. And um, yeah, I, it brings me back to my first year at university, struggling to understand land law, <laughs> just not knowing what's going on. And I think you're absolutely right. It's a symptom of not just the actual law itself, but then also these kind of broader social issues that, that, that kind of work around it. And I must say, kind of looking at, at your sort of resume per se and, and what your, your answers are giving me, you, you, you strike me very much as a sort of transformative problem solver, because not only have you tried to kind of increase the visibility of women in the, in the workplace through your sort of storytelling, as you say, but then also on the other side of things, you, you founded Obelisk, which is sort of there to try to improve um, the very nature of how kind of lawyers are working. So um, what, why did you sort of decide to found Obelisk and what was the sort of story behind that venture? Well, it's quite a, a straightforward one, really. I guess, again, mm -hmm. it goes back to my kind of desire to be free. <laughs> and, um, and journalism is a career where if you have a good nose for a story and you follow it through and you file it on time, Mm -hmm. what everybody remembers is that you've got a, a great story and you you know you succeeded in securing that um, story and and getting all the sources and you know just writing a great story that is kind of what matters rather than mm. where you were at you know 1050 um and i guess that kind of sense of being free to be creative was something that i felt very strongly um mm. that you know i i like a lot and so when I became a lawyer, I felt the world I was inhabiting was very different. And it wasn't really suited suited to kind of my creativity and my kind mm -hmm. of, as you say, problem-solving kind of spirit. Mm -hmm. And so I was just puzzled why it was that to be a lawyer, you had to kind of be married to your chair. I just mm -hmm. couldn't understand why I couldn't do the job wherever I was <laughs> as long as I did it on time and I had a good connection or uh, you know and a good computer mm. and uh, also why kind of all the aspects of who I was were not valued you know so for example mm. I'm multilingual I obviously had very strong expertise in certain kind of geographical areas so I was thinking about you know what kind of what could we do in Russia for example or what are the the kind of rising kind of opportunities really um mm. but it seemed to be a very kind of archaic system because if you're a junior you couldn't quite contribute you know you had to wait for your turn even to speak up and i just couldn't understand it so i left um on qualifying because i felt i wasn't really used to the best ability i had Mm. And um, this idea of being stuck, you know, night after night in the office just wasn't my thing. And um, so I actually left the law and set up a, a completely different business um, because I never thought of entrepreneurship as a, as a career for me. I never thought mm. of setting up a business. Um, and um, I went off, uh, you know, with a kind of fresh new idea. Mm -hmm. um, and a few years later, I was traveling in India and I heard all about the um, rise of outsourcing to lower cost jurisdictions. Mm. And so it was kind of, you know, big wave after the Lehman Brothers collapse, you know, everybody mm -hmm. was looking for more for less. Mm -hmm. And their answer was, if you take it offshore, you know, people are cheaper, essentially. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I went around a few of these centers and I just thought, well, this is absurd. You know, I know there's so many people that are sitting underutilized mm. in the UK. Why not use them? Yeah. <laughs> and um, I mean, this is 10 years ago, you know, so it wasn't uh, nowadays, I think this kind of, you know, bring the work back to our mm. workers is much more fashionable. But 10 years ago, people were just saying, I just need something cheaper. Mm. 
mm. but how you get it, it to be cheaper, they weren't really questioning. And um, so I came back and I, I came up with this idea of matching um, people, especially parents, but primarily mothers. Mm. I think we started with 100% only women, really, um, mm. that wanted to continue their legal career. They were dropping out because they couldn't handle this, you know, um, requirement to be present in the office at all hours. Mm. And they were all quitting and it was a zero sum game. So basically, mm. if you were not in 100% or 150% around the clock, you were completely mm. out. Mm. Um, and I, I thought that was just a completely, you know, I don't like zero sum. I like win win. Mm -hmm. And um, I thought, well, if I can be, if you like, the quality controller in the middle with Obelisk, mm -hmm. I can empower these people to work around their family commitments because nobody will know if they're at the school gate or not because mm. it's my role to create a seamless service for the client. And if I can deliver that, then they can just have their life back. Mm. Um, and that was the model. The model was to create, um, an, if you like, an outsourcing model around mm. home-based people. Um, and a lot of them were, were, were mothers um, that mm. had left some of the you know biggest law firms because they didn't have um, any control over their time mm. or working location. And they couldn't handle the long commute, the you know 2.5 children and all these other um, commitments they had. Mm. Um, and they didn't have a, you know, a very understanding employer, I guess. Mm. And so I, I guess on that basis, you know, in your answer, you've kind of explored some of the historical problems with law of being chained to a desk and, and, and the kind of expectations of FaceTime and the working culture and so on. Um, I guess my question would be if you is, you know, in the current circumstances with COVID, you know, so much has obviously changed in the space of a few months. Um, what does flexible working within law look like now? What, where are we kind of at in terms of firm adoption or just the cultural adoption of, of these practices? It's difficult to say what the future will bring, to be honest, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. what we've had for the last, say, four months, is not flexible work as we know it. Mm. Um, flexible work as we know it is, um, you know, not done with the children all on you, <laughs> all at the same time. You know, everybody pulling at you and everything. Normally, you you're able to do it very comfortably around, you know, school times or some kind of childcare that you can still, you know, access. COVID has created an emergency situation, and I think um, what's really important is to value. To be honest, how people feel, um, and a lot of people have reported being more productive, being positive, enjoying just being, you know, dinner time at home with their children and reconnecting with mm. their own families. And I think the value, if you like, the biggest value of flexible working is that it creates a happier workforce. Mm. And we need to consider that, especially after uh, you know a pandemic, and you know, with the kind of the shadow of it still lingering for probably a really long time, and us. The economic environment is creating a lot of um, anxiety and it's quite, you know, difficult to read what mm. we, it will mean for all of us. Creating a happy, safe space for the people that you work with is really important because they need to feel supported. And this is one way, allowing them to be closer to their families. Mm. That, you know, I always said family first um, is, to me, logical. You know, I mm. don't know of any parent um that doesn't put their children first. And I don't think we should argue with that as a workplace. We should embrace it. That is normal. You know, that shows that you have normal people. If mm. somebody, you know, says something different, I always said, you know, are we dealing with a psychopath or what is wrong with this individual <laughs> if if they have children but they're not interested in them? You know, it's yeah. it's something that tells you something about somebody's integrity and character. 
that you can mm. build on. And we want people in our businesses that we can rely on, we can trust. And their commitment to their families and also actually incredible commitment to their work because it's mm. been a tough slog for a lot of people over the last four months to make it work mm. for their employers, not just for their families. I think flexible work, permanent change to it, um, is kind of owed to them to mm. become a permanent fixture. Mm. But it's too early to tell because a lot of the firms, you know, will have commitments around real estate and office spaces and whatever. Mm. And until they can downgrade those costs or escape them or whatever, they you can see how the return will be encouraged because they have the space that they need to fill. Mm. Um, and so it will play out for a bit of, you know, uh, a bit of time in terms of, you know, how will we do it? But I, I'm convinced that the future work um, is one of a blended office and home um, environment. It will be mm. something that combines the two primarily because people will be happier and they mm. will be more productive as a result. What's always really interested me is, and I've noticed this as a student, is that, you know, a vast, I think it's like 60% of, of sort of LLB students or students who are young and looking to enter the profession are women. But then you compare that with the realities of how that's reflected later on uh, down the legal career at partnership level, for example. Um, and I think I've always kind of, I've heard discussions about how 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 this reality is being is being, you know, married together with the inflexibility of law. And obviously with COVID, that's, that's potentially going to change things, as you sort of mentioned. But is this issue of flexible working a, a predominantly women's issue? Is it a, a an issue for all? And and if so, how is it how is it impacting? Or to, to what to what degree do you think it is impacting the the ability for women to to rise through the ranks and and to succeed to partnership? I think there are a combination of factors. Flexible work is one of them, and in a way, mm -hmm. I think um, because so many people have worked flexibly in the last few months, um, maybe that will become much less about women. Um, and more about parents, really. Mm, um, mm. Uh, with the kind of why are women not rising to the very top, why are they not becoming equity partners, I think it's a more complex thing. And it is mm. partly linked to flexible work in the sense that you are pushing people out, therefore they're not in the game to be able to mm. become that. Mm. Um, but there's also something in the structural partnership that does not have transparency. Mm. To know how to rise to the top, you kind of need to understand what the recipe is. Um, you know, what does it involve? What does it mean to be an equity partner? Well, mm. actually, you probably have to take some money out of a bank to put some kind of capital into the firm. Mm. Um, you might need to have security against that. You know, how do you structure your financial contribution to the partnership that comes with being an equity partner? Mm. All of these elements of what it means to make it to the very top need to be understood much earlier on. Mm. So I remember being, you know, I left when I was junior and uh, there was no kind of attempt at trying to say, to us, well, you know, if you were dreaming of being a partner, this is a kind of vague route. Mm -hmm. um, and these are the kind of things that you kind of need to think about early on to start to layer the foundations to be able to be in a position later on to be considered for it. Mm -hmm. um, so, and I don't see that kind of structure of partnership becoming more transparent and making it easier to understand what it takes to be a partner. Mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of what's holding women back because if you don't have 
the path a little bit clearer, then you can't plan um, your, yourself around it, right? Mm. Um, so you might say, well, I want to be a partner, but in 20 years time, and actually I have plenty of time to have kids mm. in between now and in 20 years time. And um, I, that's kind of what I like to do. And you can express it and you can be understood for your aspiration and your ambition. Mm. But I think there's um, too little transparency around the progression process. And it, it kind of comes across as very, um, you know, for the very few, because of course, there are very few roles at that leadership level. Mm. And um, it's hard to figure out how do you position yourself? How do you start with the right footing, you know? Mm. And, uh, and I think very often, actually, the people that I have seen um, go the way to partnership in my kind of you know, I qualified in 2007. So we've had our first generation about three, four years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, needless to say that for my generation, everybody that made it um, to partnership, uh, they're all men, uh, all mm. white men, actually, I should say. Mm. Um, none of the girls, although we were 50-50 in my intake, none of the girls made it to partnership. A lot of them went into in-house or PSL roles. Mm. And some of them moved to in-house roles before they even had children. Mm. Um, they just didn't feel that they were being encouraged to consider partnership as a path mm. um, from the get-go. Um, and mm. I think that needs to change. You really need to say to people, actually, if you want this because you need to want it, mm -hmm. there is an opportunity. You just need to do a lot of work or business develop or whatever is required. But you need to kind of give people a sense that there is an equal opportunity to mm. rise should you be good at your job. Mm. Uh, but uh, that kind of message, I think, definitely wasn't being sent to the girls in my in my generation. Mm. Um, but I think you could tell, and uh, with hindsight, seeing that they've arrived at the partnership level, um, mm -hmm. you could see some of the signals being sent to the kind of the boys that looked a lot like the partners that they were mm. kind of working with. So it's it's more complex than flexible work, but hopefully, mm. you know. Um, getting more people to adopt it will remove that kind of label of a woman's issue mm. um, from women and men that want it. Mm. Absolutely. And uh, alongside that, that, that factor and issue of transparency, um, a lot of discussions I've had, be it with people focused on innovation within the legal space or, me or mental well-being within the legal space, it seems that this underlying unifying factor always comes back to the billable hour and this, you know, you read plenty of articles about if it's ever going to die, if it's ever going to be you know, replaced or continued for the sake of um, firms' own profitability or at least the current business model that's working. Where do you think flexible working and the billable hour kind of fit together or, or can they even fit together for the future? Well, again, this is a huge debate, you know. Um, do we need to have this kind of way of billing um, going forward? I mean, to be some degree, you know, flexible work and billable hours can work very well together because, you know, you can bill for the time you work flexibly. It's not mm -hmm. something that, um, you know, uh, working differently should not be seen as a, a barrier to, you know, being a successful business maker, right? Mm -hmm. um, because the idea is somehow, you know, flexible work makes you bill less. I'm not sure that's been probed and therefore it's an assumption as opposed to something that we know on the basis of facts that really is mm -hmm. true. People work less. Um, so I think, you know, there's a more kind of creative way of thinking about what is the legal profession trying to do? How are they serving their clients and customers and the public at the end of the day, which is underserved? 
what is the right mechanism to incentivize people to access us lawyers you know to mm. get what they need from us because what happens with the flexible with the um, billable hours that people just think goodness me it's like a black cab you know mm. i before it gets me around the corner i think it's 20 pounds but mm. i feel like i didn't even arrive at my destination so if you continue to send this signal that somehow it's not about the result at the end of the journey but it's about how much and or how long you make the journey we'll never get around this issue um, and it will cause you know a lack of trust in the profession so we need to rethink how we bill because we need to rethink how we want to support the people that are needing us um, and how we make them feel mm. and i think if you ask people most of them are just discouraged because they think well if you know i mean i remember with my business when i instructed the law firm about a corporate um, matter and uh, literally they billed me but we hadn't finished and before <laughs> I knew it was something like 4,000 pounds on the clock but they hadn't actually delivered and it just makes you feel in a certain way you're just thinking so you don't understand that my eye as a business owner is not on this process I just want to know that I've had my problem sorted and mm. done and I'm happy to pay but when you kind of get interim payment requests mm. when the work isn't done and you just think what are they thinking you know mm. do they think it's a, an acceptable way to to behave mm. it's kind of you need to put yourself into the client's mind and, and heart and say well how do i come across so very often you find that people are not you know they don't fight the idea of having to pay you for your work but they do dislike the fact they feel you're taking the piss <laughs> and yep. you're taking a really long time and they don't understand why but if you can explain why they will respect it mm. and they are prepared to pay but just don't present people with, you know, interim payment requests with mm. the job not being done. So it's kind of, it's, you know, it's not just about the hard cash, but also it's about how do you come across and what is your why in this world? Why do we exist? Mm. And keeping that at the, front, uh, you know, at the front of mind and, you know, projecting it and being clear that you care about being a lawyer mm. um, for what it means to the client. And I guess finally then taking that kind of client perspective as an example of uh, getting in the cab and potentially not knowing where your destination is and being built along the way. Um, to what extent do you think that you know this idea of flexible or freelance or kind of temporary working within within law is is the future in, in helping meet that that need of getting to the end result from the client's perspective? To be honest, I think this is the rise of the last 10, 15 years. And I think it's a fantastic thing. Um, and another yeah. way in which you can stay in I call it the kind of, you know, life in transition in law where, you know, for whatever reason, I mean, some people can be, you know, um, you know, ill or whatever, but it doesn't mean they are completely unable to do any work. And that dignity mm. of work is really important. Um, you know, it, it is something that makes us as human beings, you know, have more self-respect, maybe, you know, that idea that you can earn mm. something. And it's only in our mind because that's where our knowledge lies. And so you can't take away the importance of leaving people feeling they are able to continue. It's something they're proud. They've worked really hard to become a qualified lawyer. It's really difficult, right? Mm. Uh, to get a training contract, to get in, to, you know, and to have that all taken away suddenly, it's just really demoralizing. So to me, this kind of freelance world, world is creating that massive opportunity 
for whatever reason, you, you might want to control your time or where you work from, whatever, really gives a fantastic opportunity to continue and not to give mm. up and to remain in the profession. And then later mm. on, you could become, a, you know, we had people that work with Obelisk and they are now partners in law firms. Um, you know, that mm. kind of have returned to the traditional practice or in-house or whatever when they were ready and they had the full-time capacity and they found something they loved. But if it wasn't for that journey with us, they might have been completely disconnected and pushed out and they couldn't have explained what they've been doing, you know, for like five, six years or 10 or 12 years, mm. some of them. And that yeah. ability to freelance, to continue to build on your experience, on your CV, so you don't have a gap to explain, is yeah. empowering. And to me, I think the freelance world that we have created, not just us, but, you know, a few companies have emerged around this space, is really yeah. an empowering step for a lot of people that otherwise would probably be completely out of the market. And yeah. I know there's a lot of, you know, there's an oversupply of lawyers, but there's also an you know, an undersupply of the need for legal and lawyer services. So really what we need to focus mm. on is making sure these people continue to be involved, to be engaged, to be great at servicing their clients and to focus on the technology that can connect that work that isn't being done right now to these people that want to work on a different kind of um, social contract, if you like. And that yeah. means we'll have more work for more people and that's a good thing. And it will be really interesting to see how that how that develops as well, like you said, with these attitudinal changes to, from COVID and, and how that will be adopted in future. But um, thanks so much for coming on the show and for sharing some really fascinating insights into uh, various different areas of law. Where, where can people go to learn more about yourself and everything we, we've sort of talked on about? On LinkedIn today? and Twitter <laughs> and Instagram. I'm basically, you know, on social media. I'm, I'm always happy for people to drop me a note and um, and chat to them. So reach out. Uh, LinkedIn probably is the one that I'm most active, but also Twitter. Great. Well, thanks again for coming on to this, darling, and for sharing your insights. It was, it was fascinating to be with you. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much for listening to this edition of the More From Law podcast. The amount of support the show has received recently has been unbelievable. So thanks again for playing your part in that by listening. If you'd like to support the show, please rate it five stars on the iTunes store and follow the show on your podcast platform of choice. It really helps the show reach more listeners. If you're looking for more tips, resources and guides, you can visit my website www.harryclarklaw.com where you can also sign up to my newsletter and stay up to date with everything that I'm up to. For now though, I'll see you in the next episode of More From Law.